So we've talked about, O oh, oh Lord, lead us in thy way that we may walk in thy truth. We did an introduction yesterday to the spiritual life. And today we're going to talk about, at this point, we're going to talk about the question of ecumenism as being the number one, both dogmatic, ecclesiological question of our day and for the last century, but also the greatest probably temptation that the church is facing uh, in our day. And this is, on the one hand, nothing new. The church has been facing temptations and provocations and heresies since its beginning. Although already in the time of the apostles, we have the apostle Paul, who talks about the, the so-called Judaizers, and they wanted to insist, uh, they insisted on the Gentiles being circumcised and other traditions being kept. And the apostle Paul said very characteristically that they preach another gospel another gospel. He didn't say that they're slightly wrong and we need a dialogue. He didn't say that we need to have uh, an ecumenical movement to reconcile with those who were in the church, by the way, who were Christians, who believed in Christ. But he saw that their insistence on, the, on keeping the type and not accepting the fulfillment, that is, circumcision and not accepting baptism or other aspects of the ritual, Old Testament ritual law, he saw in that a denial, essentially, of Christ. And he said they preach another gospel. What would the apostles say today with so many distortions and heresies in our day? And what would he say about ecumenism? I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this whole talk. The precision that we talked about previously of the Holy Fathers, they want exactitude in faith, exactitude in ethos. And consider how, just how, hopefully at the end of this talk, you'll say, wow. How distorted is the vision we have today of the church among the, 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 those in the ecumenical movement and among many who call themselves Christians, just how distorted things are. So let's begin, as we always do in our talks, to remember, remind ourselves that to follow the Holy Fathers is the key to be an Orthodox Christian. It is impossible to come to know the truth or to grasp theology in any other way but by following the Holy Fathers, the saints. So, go ahead. let's begin with Pentecost. We're in the feast and the season of Pentecost. As we said in our first talk, everything leads to Pentecost. The whole of the economy of salvation leads to Pentecost. Not only the day of Pentecost, but your own personal Pentecost. That's what all of it is meant to be and to lead to. Your salvation, your communion, your unity with Christ. And what do we see at Pentecost? I think I mentioned this uh, and the talk I gave recently on the feast, if you saw it online, we talked about how important it is to understand the presuppositions for the descent of the Holy Spirit. And it says in Scripture in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were, were, they were all with one accord and in one place. It's a very important phrase. One accord in one place. That one accord is the Orthodox faith. We talked about earlier, the confession of faith, the exception of the reality of the revelation. There was no Judas among them. There was nobody who, has, who had discord as to the person of Christ. They were of one accord, and they were in one place. This one place in Scripture, in Greek, is epitoafto in Greek. The epitoafto is used later by people like, by saints like St. Saint Ignatius to mean the Eucharistic assembly, 
the Eucharistic assembly. So they weren't just together praying as it shows in some videos and, and movies uh, that the Protestants have made. They weren't together saying the Our Father. They were celebrating the Holy Eucharist, Epito Afto, in one place. One mind, one heart, unity in the Eucharist, unity in the faith. That's what the, was going on before the descent of the Holy Spirit. That means that for you and I and for every Orthodox Christian and every Christian, those are the presuppositions for us to participate in Pentecost. We have to have the Orthodox faith and we have to be in the faith, in the church, in the mysteries, in other words, participate in the Eucharistic assembly. Where does the baptism take place? In the Eucharistic assembly. You might say, well, no, it doesn't, Father. We do it on Saturday and Sunday. Yes, but it is understood that it is in that context, even though it should be. Physically, in that context, that's theologically how it's understood. It can't be understood outside of that. And suddenly, it says, there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. It wasn't fire. It was like fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that's the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, we just said last time, that it's both the presence of the Spirit himself and the gifts that show that this is Pentecost, this is the true uh, experience of Christ. <clears throat> Go ahead. So unity is a given. It is not something we are seeking. Unity is a given. Somebody says to me yesterday or the day before, Father, we have to work they write on the line underneath our videos. Father, we have to work for the unity of the church and unify the church. I said the church is unity, is unified. The church is unity. The church is Christ. It cannot be disunified. It cannot be disunited. It's impossible. So we don't have to work for anything. We have to accept. We have to be received. We have to be a part of. It's a given. It's coming down through us through history. We don't, we don't unify the body of Christ. It's, it's almost absurd, if not blasphemous, the idea that we're going to unify the, a, a broken body. Then we're not talking about Christ anymore. We're talking about a human creation. Certainly human creations need to be unified, but a divine human creation, which is the body of Christ, does not need to be unified. So it's a given, and we enter into that. And there's one body, the apostle says, one spirit, even as we are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in, in you all. What word is used more than any other in this sentence? One. You think the, the apostle thinks the church can be divided? You think he can, Is he thinking about multiple churches, multiple baptisms, multiple callings, multiple anything? No. He's stressing to the, the disciples there in, Cor in Corinth, I think it was to the Corinthians, and he says... One, one, one. And that one is Christ. It's his faith. It's his life that we're baptized into. He's the one Lord, right? It, it can't be more clear, and yet we still make a mess of it in our day and we reinterpret according to our fallen and our distorted perceptions of things. We reinterpret, and that's the nature of heresy. Heresy is when we take the human, the rationalist, approaches the divine things, and he says, okay, now i got to fit this in. This, this, this thing doesn't fit in history. We can't make sense of history if we don't reimagine this, right? And so we distort it to fit into our context, our conditions, our experiences. That's what heresy is. That's what is not revelation. He gives and is given in the mysteries and in the mystery, right? He, he meaning Christ. 
the mysteries, the baptism, Eucharist, everything that goes on is Christ doing it and being given. Given and giving himself. So when you go to the Eucharist, you don't partake of the, of the body of blood of Christ from a priest, but from Christ himself. The priest is simply gives the hands and he imparts and he is given in every mystery. And that's true with all the mysteries of the church. And he says, go therefore and teach all nations, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, but teaching them all things, like we said in the previous talk. And this is really essential to understand that it is uh, the discipleship is one thing and the teaching is the other. They're inseparable. One follows the other. First, you, make, you become a disciple and then you teach. How do you become a disciple? By being in Pentecost, by being a part of the church. So can we talk about a church outside of this church? Can we talk about teaching without discipleship? Is there discipleship without Pentecost? All these things are united, and they come down to us through history. Today in ecumenism, we have this idea that we can have multiple sources, multiple churches, multiple teachers differing from, between each other, and yet have all of them point back to the one experience and one Pentecost. Obviously not in the scriptures or in the understanding of the fathers. But before we go on, we need to stop and say, for all of us who are... Uh, not interested in the world and don't have a television uh, or don't, don't pay attention to ecclesiastical news. What is ecumenism? So ecumenism, the term itself, is from the Greek ecumeni, and it means the inhabited world. That's what the term means, ecumeni, the whole world. And, of course, it was used to describe the whole empire of the Roman Empire. It was considered the, the entire world was essentially covered by the Roman Empire at one time. It came to prom uh, prominence in our day in our day, it came into prominence in the 20th century as a coalition, a coalition of like-minded groups, sect, sects, denominations, churches, whatever you want to call it, seeking to restore religious fellowship that had been lost with the fragmentation of the church, so-called, this is a definition I've got online, into different groups. So autom automatically, right from the definition, we have a, another ecclesiology, another gospel. Right? The Apostle Paul said, if you want to circumcise anybody, you're preaching another gospel. This is another gospel, folks. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is another vision of Christ. Not just of the church. It's another vision of Christ. I really want you to understand that. When we talk about the church, and we have a different understanding, a different definition, a different vision. It's not a vision of us. It's a vision of Christ. We're members of Christ. So the minute we talk about the church, we're talking about Christ. The ecumenical movement seeks, it says, to recover the apostolic sense of the early church for unity and diversity. Does Again, do we need to recover something that's been lost in the Orthodox Church? Do we need to recover a unity? It's a given. It can't be lost to the church. You can depart from the church. You can depart from Christ. Christ is not lost. He's not seeking himself. He's not trying to find himself. He's not trying to rediscover himself. He exists in time and space and in history, just as he did when he walked on the face of the earth. These things that I'm telling you, unfortunately, but this is the nature of the spiritual life, demand a crucifixion of your intellect. They demand a crucifixion of your rational intellect and your understanding because if you come at it from a rationalist standpoint, you will not arrive at the divine revelation, right? So many people 
they say, well, but I know so-and-so, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my pastor, et cetera, et cetera. And they're working on the horizontal plane according to their own experience, and they're applying that now to divine revelation. It's exactly the opposite of what we do as Orthodox. We submit to divine revelation in the Holy Fathers. We trust and we receive. We don't judge on the basis of our little tiny experience and our little tiny brain, right? Our rationalist mindset. But we come and we submit and we stand under. That's what it means to be humble, right? That's what it means to be obedient, rather. Obedience in Greek means to stand under. So we are obedient and we follow. That's the orthodox way. Ecumenism is the movement, it says elsewhere, to restore unity again among the Christian churches and throughout the world. We practice by praying together, serving the community together, and honestly searching for God's truth together. These are all definitions by those who are involved in ecumenism. And note here, we practice this process or this attempt to restore unity by praying together. But the church is very clear that that's the cart before the horse. We are first united in Pentecost in the experience and then we have common prayer, right? After this, we have the, we have the common faith, one accord, and then we have the one place, both of them together. So it, it, this is clearly not the order of Pentecost. This is not the order of Pentecost. It's the order of ecumenism. It's upside down. Now, we're going to go back into history a little bit, and we're going to talk about... Go ahead. We're going to talk about St. Mark of Ephesus a minute before we go back to our own day and talk about the origins and the, and the history of ecumenism. Because it's important for us to remember St. Mark and what happened. How many, ever, how many do not know about St. Mark of Ephesus and the False Council of Florence? Anybody? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. So in... Throughout the church history of the last thousand years, there's been many attempts to unite the Orthodox Church, the One Holy Catholic Church, with the Pope and the Papal Church, the Papal Confession in the West, right? There's many, many attempts. The two most notable are in the Council of Florence, and before that, a, the uh, attempt by the Emperor, essentially, to unite uh, with the Pope in the so-called Council of Lyon. Both of them failed, and the main reason the second one failed was because of St. Mark of Ephesus and his witness. And they were both essentially politically driven for the sake of the empire, to save the empire from the imminent advance of Islam. Uh, the first less so, but the second one very clearly driven by political desires. Today we have the same problem. Today we have politically driven efforts, indeed by people outside the church, unrelated to the church, driving political, uh, religious leaders to unite for reasons that have nothing to do with salvation or, or church unity, but have everything to do with global politics, geopolitics, and all the rest. So this is the perennial temptation in the church, mainly through political power. If you go back to the iconoclasts, you go back to the various emperors who tried to force a faith on the church. It's usually the devil using the power of this world, the political power, to force the church into compromises and distortions. St. Mark of Ephesus was one of the representatives of the church, sent uh, chosen by the emperor. He, had actually, he was actually a higher monk when he was chosen. They made him the metropolitan of Ephesus, and he was renowned for his theology. He was a teacher in the uh, in Constantinople, and was well known as a layman among the people in the uh, court 
of the emperor. And then he left and went, became a monk, came back a few years later in the monastery in Constantinople, lived there, became very well known because he was extremely erudite and, uh, and, and virtuous as a monastic. And he was elevated to this position of the Metropolitan of Ephesus in order to represent the Orthodox Church in this union attempt in Florence in Italy. And so he, he, was, uh, he was actually beloved by the emperor. And he went along with the rest of the representatives, about 30, I think, most of them uh, also handpicked by the emperor to uh, this council that was going to be in uh, Florence. Uh, started in Ferrara, and then it went to uh, Florence, uh, Italy. Now, this went on for about uh, three years, actually. Believe it or not, it's kind of hard to imagine today. We had a council in Crete, and it was a week, 10 days, two weeks, I don't remember. And, and it was a big deal, right? This went on for three years, <laughs> two and a half years. Uh, and there were many, many sessions, and they were waiting for months and months and months for money and different. It's a very involved history. In any case, it came to a point where the emperor essentially was pushing the representatives of the Orthodox Church to compromise on the filioque, the famous phrase that was added, distorted the theology of the Trinity and, and was added to the creed in the West. That was really the cause of the, of the falling away of the Pope from the Orthodox Church. When they walked away from the Eighth Ecumenical Council that had happened in Constantinople, they had, they, and they adopted the filioque, they turned their back on the conciliar nature of the church, the decisions of ecumenical councils, and that's what took them out of the Orthodox Church. The Pope walked away from the uh, decisions of an ecumenical council. So that was the main, one of the main topics they, they talked about. Also, the place of the Pope, the, the power of the Pope was another one. Also, purgatory, the idea in the West that there is an in-between state, which does the fathers have never embraced and never talked about in the West, in the East. And also the so-called azymes, azymes. In the West, they had started to make uh, the bread that they used in the Eucharist was not leaven. And so uh, that was a, distor a distortion of departure from holy tradition. And there were other issues they discussed as well. The main one, again, is the question of the filioque, the Holy Trinity. In any case, they slowly, slowly, after much time, after being starved for a time, there's a, there's a whole history, you can read the whole history, it's been recorded by several people. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on them to compromise for the sake of political expediency. St. Mark, of course, was revered as the most erudite of the representatives, and he refused. He refused to give way, even after the emperor and the pope were both of them pressuring him, trying to coax him, and all the rest. And he, uh, famously, the pope said, if Mark does not agree, we've accomplished nothing. Because he knew that Mark was the, was the hero of the Orthodox. He would go back to Constantinople and they would not, uh, they would not have achieved their goal of, of subjecting Orthodoxy to the papacy. And that's really what it was about. I mean, the whole pageantry of the Council of Florence had them bowing initially and kissing the slipper of the Pope. I'm not joking when I say that. They, they, that was what they expected the Orthodox to do. Of course, the emperor insisted they not do that, so they kissed his hand, not, the, not the, uh, uh, the slipper. But I mean, the whole push there in the West, after 400 years, they had elevated the Pope to a position that, of course, never existed in the East, and was uh, just uh, like an emperor, but even greater than an emperor, because he had divine, uh, you know, representing the divinity on Earth. So, the Pope responded, uh, uh, St. Mark, rather, responded, and I'm going to read that to you now. There's a, we could talk for a whole hour and a half just on St. Mark, but we're just going to get a little couple excerpts, because I want you to see what the church has held up as the proper position 
when it comes to dogmatic matters and union with the heterodox. You have to understand, this is not just a saint. The church has held him up for the last 500 years as an example for us to follow. So we should be very familiar with him and his life and not simply say, well, as many people do today, they rationalize it and they, you know, they talk all about the, the history. It, it, whatever the details of the history, the church ended up saying he kept orthodoxy. They call him the atlas of orthodoxy. And now St. Mark responded uh, at the very end of this process, refusing to compromise uh, to the Pope's words, Mark gave an extensive commanding reply concerning the interdiction, interdictions with which the Pope threatened him. He said the following, The councils of the church have condemned as rebels those who have transgressed against some dogma and have preached thus and fought for this, for which reason also they called heresy. They're, they are called heretics. In other words, those who rebel against the conciliar teachings of the church and transgress the dogmas are called heretics. That's the term we use for those who refuse to accept the ecumenical councils. And that's what happened with the Pope in the 11th century. And from the beginning, the church has condemned the heresy itself. Only then, after condemning the heresy, has it condemned the leaders of the heresy and its defenders. But I have by no means preached my own teaching, nor have I introduced anything new in the church, nor defended any foreign and false doctrine. But I have held only that teaching which the church received in perfect form from our Savior, and in which it has steadfastly remained to this day. What do we say from the beginning of every talk, and what do we say again and again? Following the Holy Father. St. Mark is saying, look, I'm not creating, I'm not innovating, I'm not making this up. Whatever we received, I'm passing on to those after me. That's the nature of what the church has done. There is no development of doctrine in the Orthodox Church. That's a Roman Catholic idea. Doctrine does not develop in the slightest. It is revelation, it's given. What is applied is not developed. It's very important because the idea in the West with Newman and others is that we have revelations, as it were, within holy tradition. We, we, under, we understand, yes, it's the same experience, but we understand late, and then we dogmatize. No. Nothing is newly given, nothing is newly discovered. What we're doing is the same experience that we have, we're, we're putting boundaries around that to say, this teaching is outside that boundary. It's given, we receive it, and then we say, we don't, at the council, we're not saying, oh, let's see, what's the faith? Let's see, oh, oh that's the faith. No, no, it's the experience of the, of the fathers simply put down on paper and a boundary putting around it and saying, that's, the, that's what's been given to us, confirming that, reconfirming that, and then saying this new teaching on ecumenism or on the filioque is not within those boundaries. That's all we're doing in the ecumenical councils. After the false union, pay attention how St. Mark lived and what he did, because there will be a false union very likely in our lifetime, if not in the, first, in the next couple of years. And I don't say that as an non-profit. I'm just repeating what others are telling me in Greece, on Mount Athos, and among uh, the saints of our day. They're expecting a false union in the near future. And there's a lot of signs that they're working toward it, even in our day. And it may, it may even come in a few years. So it, this is an important example for us to, to have in mind. He says, St. <clears throat> Mark says, they say about him, I'm sorry, this is his, his brother, John of Evgenikos, 
He was talking about his life after returning to Ephesus uh, and uh, in, in the east. Actively traveling everywhere throughout the regions of the great evangelist and John the Theologian, that means Ephesus, and doing this over long periods and with labor and difficulty, being sick in body, visiting the suffering holy churches, and especially constructing the church of the metropolis with the adjoining buildings, adorning pre ordaining priests, helping those suffering injustice, whether by reason of persecution or some other trial from the side of the unrighteous, defending widows and orphans, shaming, interdicting, comforting, exhorting, appealing, strengthening. He was, according to the divine apostle, everything for everyone. So St. Mark didn't go back and say, the world is over, the union has happened, uh, the end of the world, but he kept on working and struggling and teaching and serving. I think you went one too far. Go to the next one. That's where we need. He also says about the question of those who had embraced the union. So initially the union had been agreed to, and then in Constantinople, after a few years, they had a union liturgy uh, uh, just before the fall, uh, and they, they, they united in Eucharistic uh, communion. And at this point, St. Mark is basically standing against the emperor and all those bishops who went along with him. Uh, there are monastics who are with St. Mark. There are a lot of faithful, but for the most part, the episcopacy has sold out, and they're following uh, the emperor and the Latins and the uh, the those sent by the Pope to basically direct things in Constantinople. Uh, among former Orthodox, like Isidore from Moscow and Bessarion, who are apostates, who apostatized during the Council of Florence and became cardinals in the West. They came now back and they were kind of running the show from behind the scenes. So you had this scene where you have Mark and the faithful and the monastics, and you have the vast majority of the episcopacy uh, in union with the Pope at, at the end of his life. And he says, I am convinced that the further I depart from him, the patriarch, in other words, those who had become a communion with the Latins, and from those like, mind, like him, the Latin-minded, the closer I draw near to God and all the faithful and all the Holy Fathers, and the more I am separated from them, uh, by so much more am I united to the truth and the Holy Fathers. So he said this about the papal, Protestants, I, I like to call them the papal Protestants because the Pope was the first Protestant. He's not, the, he's, he's not a pre-Protestant, he's the first Protestant. He's the example that the Protestants followed. He protested and walked away from the unity of the church and the conciliation of the church, and he gave the example for all those who followed after him. So he says, the farther I, I am for those who united with them, the closer I am to the Holy Fathers. How much more should someone say that today? When we have a Vatican I, we have a Vatican II, we have a dissolution even of the tradition that they had in the West, uh, and we have general chaos and clown masses and on and on and on and on. The dissolution of Catholicism before our eyes is probably would have been unthinkable 50 years ago, let alone 500 years ago, where they've arrived in the West today. So St. Mark should be an example for us very decisive, very clear about where we need to be. So then he was arrested by the emperor, and for two years he was in prison. And he says, I've been arrested, but the word of God and the power of truth cannot be bound. 
but all the stronger flow and prosper. And many of the brethren, encouraged by my exile, overthrow the reproaches of the lawless and the violators of the Orthodox faith and the customs of the fatherland. So he went to prison for two years. He was released later because they could see that it was not helping their cause. And yet he suffered for the Orthodox faith. Did we know that? Did you know that he went to prison for two years? I think most people don't know that. Next one. His brother who wrote his life said he knew that his confession was indispensable because, as he wrote, if there had been no persecution, the martyrs would not have shown, nor would the confessors have received the crown of victory from Christ and by their exploits strengthen and gladden the Orthodox Church. He consciously knew that he needed to have this stance and by this stance, the church would be built up. And I think that's something we also need to keep in mind, that it's not... Do not look at the externals. Do not look at, 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 at we need to, uh, many people think like in these, these terms, we need to not be persecuted, not sent in exile, because we need to stay and have the bishopric or have the priest's position. Uh, we not, not be defrocked, not be exiled, not be suspended. And that's most important. And then the, the confession of the faith is somewhere down here. That's not the position that St. Mark had. Now they had unified, right? So we're not quite... We don't have an open Eucharistic communion right now with the Latin-minded. So it's a little bit different, but you can see his decisiveness is very clear. And I think that going forward, we have to have, to have that in mind. When, and it's very likely in our lifetime, there will be Eucharistic communion by certain Orthodox hierarchs with the Pope. Remember what St. Mark did and how he lived. Now, let's go back to our time. And let's look at the origins of ecumenism. And I'll have to blow through this because it's a lot of material and, and we're not going to we're not gonna be able to go through it all. But if you want, we can give you the PDF and you can look at the text. So some of this I'm not going to read in full. I'm just going to say the essence of the card. I wrote a little book which you can buy over here. It's a short 60-page book. Uh, it was a talk I gave 20 years ago at a big conference in Athens. And it's called The Missionary Origins of Modern Ecumenism. And it talks about the five stages that ecumenism passed in the 19th and early 20th century. And I'll, we'll go through these really quickly. But to understand modern ecumenism, you have to understand the Protestant missionaries in uh, and around the world. Uh, it's, in that, it's, in the, it's among the missionaries is where ecumenism was born. What happened? Well, they went to do mission, the, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Anglicans, and there they all all together in Africa and they're making converts, and they're building up their respective churches, and the natives are looking at them and saying, well, which church is the one church? And why should I be with you and not with you? And the Protestants started to talk between themselves and say, you know, this is a ridiculous, this is a terrible witness. How can we make disciples? They started to realize in the mission field why their divisions are actually not of God, and they need to, be, uh, they need to do something about this witness. So they went back to their respective churches, and they said, we need unity for the sake of mission. Now, that's a key phrase. That's always been what it's been about for Protestants. It's never been about going back to the holy tradition. It's never been about following the Holy Fathers. It's a practical desire for mission that led them to want unity. Right? And so the whole missionary endeavor is the springboard of the ecumenical movement. And it's what prepares the, for us for the ecumenical century. 
and from a missionary to an ecumenical ecclesiology. Um, this person on the screen here is David Livingston. He was famous in his explorations and his work in Africa. And he famously said that what we need to do in the mission field is bring the English language, commerce to the four corners of the earth, and make these uh, natives, these barbarians, into Christians. And so the missionary, missionary or, uh, movement was always in the context of colonialism. And it was in the context of spreading the Western culture, the Western languages, and the Western way of life. And so you can't think of a 20th century and globalism without the work of Protestant missionaries. Unfortunately, they brought their brand of Christianity to the four corners of the earth, and it became the basis not of a conversion of the world to Christ, but of globalism. Largely, on this basis, there was a global uh, uh, culture, and, and the English became the worldwide language through the efforts of the colonialists and the missionaries uh, that went along with them. Next card. So they developed in the mission field a evangelical ecclesiology, which we talked about last night. You remember what he said? Theologies divide, experience unites. That's the evangelical ecclesiology. Okay, so that's, that's one of the major stages that ecumenism passed on its way forward. We've already talked about that, so I'm not going to stay uh, very long on that. And milestone B <coughs> is... Uh, well, it's, it's, it's actually more of the same. Let me see if I'm missing something. Yeah. So we have a missionary ecclesiology, the invisible church. Then we have an evangelical ecclesiology. Again, this idea of a experience that unites us, and not so much theology. And then we go to milestone three, and that is this, the worldwide YMCA and student Christian movements. Very important in the spread of ecumenism in the early 20th century. And it inspired people like John Mott, one of the most important evangelicals of the early 20th century, one of the most important in terms of the YMCA, but also the World Ecumenical, uh, the World Council of Churches, one of the founders. And he says there about the Student Federation, which reached Russia and Constantinople and brought about the first steps in ecumenism among the Orthodox. He says that this federation will unite in spirit the students of the world. In, and in doing so, it will be achieving a yet more significant result, the hastening of the answer to our Lord's prayer that they all may be one. You've heard this phrase in the ecumenical movement. They say it all the time in the various meetings. They take the phrase of our Lord's prayer for the disciples and they, where he said that they all may be one, and they apply it to all the various denominations and all the various Protestant groups. The problem is that he's talking about unity in the church in Christ and theosis. He's talking about the disciples, his own disciples, being united in the experience of theosis. He's not talking about uniting heretical sectarian denominations into one you know, uh, uh, dogma-less experience in church. It's clearly not what the Lord had in mind in the, in the gospel. Go on to the next one. These student movements then are used not only in um, uh, the students, among students around the world, but then they become the uh, link that will take the evangelical ecclesiology beyond the narrow confines of evangelicalism 
and we and into the various Protestants uh, beyond the evangelical world, the various mainline, and eventually even Catholicism. And the characteristic of this outlook is non-doctrinal, non-ecclesial in terms of traditional understanding of church, non-sacramental, right? These student movements, ironically, at once signaled the disintegration of the Western confessions and their reintegration, but in a non-ecclesial way. So we're at the end of the disintegration of Protestantism in terms of a traditional ecclesiological outlook, and now they're searching for unity. They're uniting, but they're not now not uniting in anything like an ecclesial way, right? Traditionally, in the mysteries, in the Eucharist, none of that. The unity now is in a is a worldly unity, an external unity, a spiritual unity of emotional or other experiences of Christ. So they were seeking Catholicity, but they were not seeking it vertically, diachronically, right? Through time and with God, but horizontally, only in space, right? So unity in the Orthodox Church is in space all around the world right now. It's in time, diachronically throughout all of history, and it's vertically, immediately with Christ, so it's, it's both horizontal and vertical. They were seeking it essentially horizontally among all those today, but not tied to the witness of 2,000 years of tradition, history, the church fathers. Totally disintegrated from what had become come before them. Next one. So, nope, go back. Yeah. Uh, now, they come to 1910 in Edinburgh. It's a massive meeting of all the various Protestant groups. The first the mother of all meetings that give birth to the ecumenical movement in Edinburgh, and largely it grows out of the missionary movements and the desire to do mission around the world. They get together in this, uh, in this um, conference, and it says there, out of it grew the movements which were to form the World Council of Churches in 1948 and the International Missionary Council, which became the Mission and Evangelism Wing of the WCC in 1961. So this is, this is the cradle of future uh, ecumenism. Go ahead. And what do they see there? A united and renewed church outfitted for a universal mission and service, moving beyond its borders, uniting the entire ecumeni. This is the new dream that stirred men into performing the incredible drama of Edinburgh and the modern ecumenical movement. I'm quoting an historian of the event. It is a dream with eschatological implications and they are quite correct to see it as a strange inversion of the Christian church, which had hitherto existed. What a tragedy. So many zealous souls, so many people who want to serve Christ, so many missionaries spending their life in the in mission fields, and yet what they end up creating is an inversion of the Christian church, which had previously existed for the last 1,800 years in terms of ecclesiology, in terms of the nature of the church. At Edinburgh, the walls of doctrine began to fall, and in their place were, were erected the belief that differences would be transcended without being surrendered. We, we will see that in the union, the false union of the coming to, in, in the next couple of years. We will see that they will say, they're already saying it, that's why I can say with surety they're, they're already on this path, those who are, who are avid ecumenists, they will say that we are not going to have to uh, 
uh, it's not about return, like the papists have to return to the Orthodox or the Orthodox to the Pope. No, 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 we're not talking about return anymore. It's about reconciliation. In other words, nobody moves from their position. We just unite. So the differences, as it says here, they'll be transcended without being surrendered. This is the recipe for the false union, which we will see. Even worse than what happened in Florence, because in Florence, the Orthodox submitted. And of course, it was rejected. Now, the devil and those who are ecumenists, they understand that that, can't, that won't work again. If we demand the Orthodox submit to the Pope, it's not going to work. We already did that once. We did it twice. It's not going to work. So now we have to have a new formula. And the formula will be remain Orthodox. Keep everything as the same. Your church won't, won't change one iota. You won't even have to commemorate the Pope. None of that's necessary. You'll be united. They'll have the Eucharistic communion in Rome and in Constantinople, and everything will move along as is, right? This is exactly the spirit of Antichrist at the end we'll talk about tonight. And it will be, you'll, you'll remember tonight when I commemorate this, hopefully this connection, they will say in the days ahead, according to Father Daniel the Sisoyev, they will come to you and they will say to you as a Christian, don't deny Christ, don't deny the church, just accept the other religions as equal pass up the mountain. That's exactly what they're going to do with, between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Don't deny Orthodoxy. Don't deny St. Mark. Just reinterpret him as being inclusive. We're going to be inclusive now, and everybody will be fine. And most Orthodox in America will probably go along with it. Why? Because they're already in that mindset. We're already dealing with that kind of mindset among those who are unlearned and who don't read the fathers, don't follow the saints, right? They're a part of this world. This is the milieu. This is the mindset of most people today. So it won't be a big jump. They'll say, yeah, of course. Well, this is what we've been hoping for. We have so many relatives who are in the other churches. This will be a wonderful thing. And it'll be a witness for Christ around the world. So this is the ecclesiological framework of ecumenism. And it never changes. To this day, this is the ecclesiological framework. Okay, next one. So the Orthodox then, in 1920, in the Ecumenical Patriarchate, they issue an encyclical, which essentially brings them into early participation and aligns them with this ecclesiology. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from this encyclical of 1920, which is hailed to this day. I went to theological school in Thessaloniki, and my professors would say, this is a great statement, some of them. Others, of course, said, no, it's a terrible statement. It's not orthodox. As you know, my professors, Chalikidis and Zisis and others said, no, this is her heresy. But others there said, this is, this is great. So this is 1920, and it's probably written by this man or that man, both named Girmanos. One was the previous patriarch, and the other was a metropolitan who followed after him. Uh, but we're not really sure exactly the author, but probably one of or both of these men. And it says, quoting Ephesians 3.6, look, look at what happens here. They take the words of the Apostle Paul and they distort them. And they, they seem to be appealing to tradition and the, and the Apostle is, as they distort and, and pervert what he wants to say. And they quote St. Paul, Ephesians 3.6, as applying to all of the various Christian denominations, not to the church or the local churches of the Orthodox Church. No, this is applied now to all the various denominations around the world. And they say the, they quote the, the following from St. Paul, that they should no more consider one another as strangers and foreigners, 
but as relatives and as being a part of the household of Christ and fellow heirs, that's the Apostle Paul's words, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of God in Christ. They take that phrase and they say, everybody around the world, Protestants, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Monophysites, consider as being in the same body and partakers of the same promise of God in Christ. Never, not, never done before by any Orthodox theologian or saint or anybody. It's a total innovation to apply that to those which had been separated for heresy and all the rest. And the fact that we know that they meant this, we know they meant this because we have a quote from Metropolitan Gibranos in 1929 where he says as much. Listen to what he says about the encyclical. How wide the conception is, which the encyclical teaches at this point, becomes clear in that it widens the notion of the relationships between the members of a single church, the local Orthodox churches, as members of one body, according to St. Paul's wonderful teaching, so as to apply to it to the relationships between several churches. So he's clearly saying that I, we are adopting the ecumenical evangelical ecclesiology. We're, we're adopting this idea that had never been before adopted by the Orthodox Church. This is the real outset within Orthodoxy of aligning Orthodoxy with the ecumenical heretical ecclesiology. So, this encyclical, let me see if I, because we, we have a lot of material to cover, I want to make sure, um, I haven't already said this, and so we don't repeat ourselves. Um, yeah, essentially what we're saying here is that what we have now is a reaction and a, and a departure in this encyclical. We have a reaction to political world events and a departure from the previous careful approach of the Orthodox. Uh, but it was more than just a departure. It was a remarkable change of mind. That's a phrase taken by an ecumenist, uh, uh, the head of, uh, one of the heads of the World Council of Churches. A remarkable change of mind, he said, the Orthodox had. With the encyclical, the Patriarchate did not simply change its stance vis-a-vis -vis the heterodox confessions. It changed its understanding of the Orthodox Church itself. You remember what I said. When we talk about the Church, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about the identity of Christ, the identity of the church. So when we say the church is now many denominations in one, we're changing our understanding of Christ, of the church, of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just saying they're something different, we're something different. We're not what we were and understood to be for the last 1,800 years. That's really what's at stake. And so people have to, you have to remember that. I think we talked about that earlier with one of the questions that you're going to say, this is about Christ. It's not about you as a Protestant or me as an Orthodox Christian. Who is Christ? That's what's at stake. Um, yeah, I just commemorate the, the booklet. You can buy it over here on the, on, the, on the right. Now, this is a timeline. It's very hard to read. I'll, I'll go quickly. Um, this shows you the so-called ecumenical tree. And so this just shows you that in their own sources, what I'm telling you is exactly how they understand it. It starts in Edinburgh. They show you exactly how it comes down and the, or and the Orthodox involvement and the creation of the World Council of Churches and all the rest. And there's another timeline that I created here and I added a few things following what they said and I added a few things. And one of the things that I add here is very important is they have the, they have the World Council of Church events. And in this, we're, I have this little... Uh, eye, it reminds us of the Masonic eye, 
the encyclical of 1920, that's an event for the Orthodox, a big event. And then we also have sorry, uh, the 1911 assembly in Constantinople of the uh, World Con uh, Conference of Student Fellowships, which was a major event that brought the Protestants into uh, contact with the Patriarchate of Constantinople. In 1919, which I don't have here, there is an agreement between the Patriarchate of Constantinople and the Protestant missionaries, evangelicals in Constantinople and Asia Minor, that they will no longer missionize one another. It's called a comedy agreement, and it agrees that we're not going to try to make the Protestants Orthodox, or and they're not going to try to make the Orthodox Protestants. That's one of the first of its kind, and to this day, of course, that's very common in the ecumenical movement. So the idea that they, anybody needs to convert is slowly done away with, right? That's a part of the whole disintegration of our ecclesiology. But all of this shows the path here uh, that has led down into our day, uh, session after session. It's a very, very uh, large and, and involved history that involves, unfortunately, a lot of the Orthodox. Okay, let's keep going. So I want to read you a few words from some of the saints about the ecumenical movement and how they understand it. This is Father uh, Michael Pomazansky, who was a great teacher of the faith at, at Jordanville, who proposed about I don't know, 30 years ago now. And he was a teacher uh, of dogmatics uh, for many generations of Russian priests. And he says, although the ecumenical movement of recent times is occupied not with the question of the unity of faith, but with the aim of participating in the proposed plan of an epochal reconstruction of human society, still, sooner or later, the question of the foundation and scope of Christian faith is in this attempt a union will have to arise. This is back in the 60s, right? So he's saying, look, they're not really serious about doctrinal unity. It's all about reshaping society. That's, that's really what it was in the 60s. And Father George Florovsky says as much that the, the Protestants are not serious about doctrine. We've, we ourselves, uh, he says, it is our obligation to show why this movement cannot be justified. But we ourselves will not be completely justified if we descend from the breadth of the Orthodox worldview with all its fullness to the narrow platform of conceptions and most importantly to Western conceptions of the church. So he's saying, look, we cannot enter into this movement and become participants and at the same time depart from our Orthodox principles and Orthodox physiology. But that's unfortunately what has happened for the most part. Next one. Um... I'm going to summarize some of these because it's going to go too late for us. It's very involved. One of the things that happens with ecumenism, it distorts the church's aim and where its gaze is. And so what happens is we turn earthward to the sociological plane. And the church starts to be concerned about this world and the, 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 the construction of this world. So in ecumenism, you hear constantly, we have to come together for the peace of the world. We have to come together for the unity of the world. We have to come together to fight a common enemy. In the Middle East, you see Orthodox uniting with heretical groups because we have Islam as a common enemy. And this is very much the tactic uh, in ecumenism is that instead of looking that the church is here as a pilgrim and a narrow path for eternity and to take and unite everyone in Christ for that purpose, now our, our gaze goes earthward and the church is here to serve the world and its unity, its peace, and all the rest. That's not the goal and that's not why Christ came, obviously. That, it, this, that takes the, the church from the heavenly or the theological or the spiritual plane, and it, and it brings it down to a sociological plane. And that is a clear distortion 
of the experience of the church. Another big uh, uh, part of uh, the ecumenical movement and the ideology of the ecumenists, as I said before, is that there is a common baptism. And in fact, that's one of the cornerstones of ecumenism is that we, sh we are already united. Before we have any Eucharistic communion, we are already united. How are we united? We're united in a common baptism. We're all baptized Orthodox Christians. You've heard that, certainly. You might even think that, or you might even have been thinking that for many years before you became an Orthodox Christian. And the idea is that the mysteries can, baptism can be separated from the mystery, which is the church, the incarnation. And it can happen outside of that clear, visible reality of the Orthodox Church. And it is said among the Orthodox ecumenists, the Pope himself says, we exhort our faithful, Catholic and Orthodox, to strengthen the spirit of brotherhood, which derives from a single baptism and participation in the sacramental life. Actually, that's not just the Pope speaking. There's another person who's writing and agreeing with that. Anybody, any, anybody have any idea who, who signed this declaration along with the Pope? Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew in 1995 wrote these words and agreed to these words. So he is adopting the ecclesiology of ecumenism, the ecclesiology of the Second Vatican Council. He goes on, along with the Pope at the time, John Paul II, we, are all we all are all, both Orthodox and Heterodox, members of Christ, a single unique body, a single and unique new creation, since our common baptism has freed us from death. Clearly, the ecumenical ecclesiology of 1920 and the uh, various Protestant confessions. Now, the Orthodox Church understanding of this matter is very clear. You know it already, but let me read this to shore it up even more. The Orthodox Church understanding of heretical baptism flows from, its, from and is determined by its self-understanding of being the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which alone performs the one baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ. This is so, for the church is known in her mysteries. This is a famous patristic phrase, the church is known in her mysteries. Who said that? St. Nicholas Gavasilos in the 14th century. How do we know the church? Where is the church visible? In the mysteries, baptism, chrismation, the Eucharist, ordination. In the Eucharistic assembly, that's where you know the church. All right, so the minute you say, baptism exists, the church exists. They're inseparable. So the minute you say the Protestant's baptized, that means he's in the church. And that means you have a church that's divided, a church that doesn't believe the same thing, the one faith. You, you cannot divide the mysteries from the visible, concrete reality of the church without extending the church to that place where, wherever you consider there to be a baptism. It goes on and says, in and through the mysteries the church exists and is continually formed, her borders set, her members identified. Those who live their lives outside the mysterious sacramental life are outside the body of Christ. Metropolitan Amphilochius, the proposed Metropolitan of Montenegro, said uh, these words uh, 30 years ago. Let's hear from this one here. Let's hear from... Oh, actually, I, I passed with it now. Yeah, that's all right. We, we know that already. Let's keep going. Go to the, this one. Here. This is St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century talking about baptism and what, where is baptism, what is baptism. He says, The bath of baptism we may not receive twice or three times. 
We believe in one baptism. By the way, that one baptism does not just re uh, refer to the quantity. It also refers to the identity, right? As the, the Apostle Paul said, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's not just about there's only one time, but there's only one baptism with one faith and in one place. And St. Cyril goes on and says, For there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. None but the heretics are rebaptized since their former baptism was not a baptism. You cannot reconcile that statement with contemporary ecumenism. It's irreconcilable. They clearly do not believe that. They clearly believe that those who teach heresy and are outside the church are baptized with the one baptism of the church. Um, we're going to skip that. And we'll skip that as well. These are all very interesting. I can give you the... Anybody who wants to go deeper, I can give you the PDF. Uh, let's read this. This is very interesting. This is from the famous canonist of Antioch, Theodore Balsamon, in the 12th century. Just so you don't have any, uh, any thought that this is a new teaching that I'm giving you, or that this is a reaction and we don't really believe this for the last thousand years, listen to what the famous canonist Theodore Balsamon said in the 12th century. He had a question given to him. This is how things work. They would question, send questions to this patriarch, and he would answer people all over the uh, Orthodox Church. Shall one perform priestly rites or pray together without danger with heretics, namely Jacobites and Nestorians, in their churches or even our own? Or might one share a common table with them or perform sponsorship at holy baptism or perform memorial services of the departed or commune of the divine sanctified elements, the divine Eucharist with them? Question, can we do this? Can we do these things? Can we common table? Uh, sponsorship of the Holy Baptism? Can we have memorial services? Can we have the Eucharist? Can we do these acts of the church together? For the area, area's difficulties create many such things, and I seek what one must do. Because the, the conditions and the uh, with Islam and all the rest, it, it, it had already been going on for quite some time, difficulties for the Christians in the Middle East. And he says the following to this, who's in a very difficult situation, and probably a priest who's writing him. Do not give the holy things to the dogs, our Lord and God has said, nor cast pearls before swine. Indeed, on this account, Canon 64 of the Holy Apostles, the heralds of God, states, If any clergyman or layman might enter any, an assembly of the Jews or heretics to pray, let him be defrocked or excommunicated. Do we see our hierarchs going to churches or synagogues and praying today? If you're paying attention, you do see this. And this canon would defrock them. If, if this canon was applied to their activities, they would be defrocked. And in fact, this is what the great patriarch is telling them should happen. They should be defrocked for what they're doing. He goes on, canon 33 of the council in Laodicea, but indeed also 6 and 34, so three other canons state, concerning not permitting heretics to enter a house of God while they remain in heresy, because one must not pray with a heretic or schismatic. A Christian must not abandon Christ's martyrs and depart for false martyrs, namely heretical ones, or those that the aforementioned heretics produced. So even the martyrs that are produced by heretics, he says, do not go and identify with them, for these are estranged from God. Therefore, let those departing from them be anathematized. I mean, this is not some strange, you know, exception to the rule. This is one of the main canonists who the church still runs to and says, how do we understand the canons? 
How do we understand the father's decisions of the ecumenical councils? Indeed, on this account, he, he continues, we also decided that both clergy and laity are subject not only to excommunication and defrocking when they pray together in a church of Orthodox or heretics, or whenever they pray together as clergy, or even share a meal together, but also they shall be punished in a more severe way according to the provisions of the cited divine canons. For the difficulties of areas and the increase of heretics did not change the soundness of Orthodox faith. So they're going to come and say to us, Father Peter, you are a rigorist, you are a fanatic, and you are quoting canons out of context, and you're applying them in totally different conditions. And yet, how does he end this, this quote? He says, it doesn't matter the areas or the difficulties. The Orthodox faith is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You cannot move these boundaries and still follow the Holy Fathers. And yet, that's what we're doing today. We're doing it left and right. And it's undermining the salvation, our salvation, who do that, and the salvation of every, everyone around us. The, this is the demonic plan, brothers and sisters. If you obscure the boundaries, you obscure the identity of Christ. If you obscure the identity of Christ, people will not find him. People will not come to him. They will not be united to him. This is the demonic plan to obscure the boundaries. If I'm searching out there in the midst of the world and so many diversions, so many temptations, and I can't see a clear picture of Christ, that he is here and not there, I will have much more difficulty finding him and uniting myself to him. This is the demonic plan. And the, the, the patriarch here is saying, times, conditions cannot change these immovable boundaries. And yet, we're doing it left and right. In fact, the Patriarchate of Antioch is very much doing this today for economical reasons in the Middle East. They should listen to the Patriarch and maybe reconsider. Father George Kausu, on ecumenism, famous professor of the faith uh, from Romania who was in prison and uh, ended his days here in the United States. What does he say? This is, in 19, this is in 2005 or 2004, he said this, there is a spirit unveiling in Europe and the world in general, a new age kind of spirit that frequently changes its appearance and speech, striking the Christian world from all sides. Its image is generally gentle, its discourse attractive, but its intent perfidious. This spirit can speak in beautiful words about family, but its intent is to annihilate it. It can speak on the church full of love for all, a sort of religious syncretism, but its urge is primarily to dispel orthodoxy. It can speak about nations and their homelands as something it tries to support, but its intent is to destroy both the church and the nations. This spirit is called ecumenism. Father Sierra from Rose on ecumenism. First on the picture, orthodoxy has one thing to say to the ecumenical movement. Here is the truth. Join yourself to it. To remain, to discuss this truth, not merely weakens the Orthodox witness, it destroys it. And he goes on, Orthodox Christians hold fast to the grace which you have. Never let it become a matter of habit. Never measure it by human standards or expect it to be logical or comprehensible to those who understand nothing higher than what is human or who think to obtain the grace of the Holy Spirit in some other way than that which the one church of Christ has handed down to us. True orthodoxy by its very nature must seem totally out of place in these demonic times. St. Eustine Popovich. 
What is ecumenism dogmatically and spiritually? And what do the purified, illumined, and glorified say about ecumenism? He says, like the holy apostles, the holy fathers, and teachers of the church confess the unity and uniqueness of the Orthodox Church with the divine wisdom of the cherubim and the zeal of the seraphim. Understandable, therefore, is the fiery zeal which animated the holy fathers of the church in all cases of division and falling away and the stern attitude toward heresies and schisms. In that regard, the holy ecumenical and holy local councils are preeminently important. According to their spirit and attitude, wise in those things pertaining to Christ, the church is not only one, but also unique. Just as the Lord Christ cannot have several bodies, so he cannot have several churches. According to her theanthropic nature, the church is one and unique, just as Christ, the God-man, is one and unique. And he goes on, Ecumenism is a common name for the pseudo-Christianities of, for the pseudo-churches of Western Europe. Within it is the heart of all human, uh, all European humanisms led by the papacy. All these pseudo-Christianities, all these pseudo-churches are nothing more than one heresy next to the other. Their common name is pan-heresy. This is one of the greatest saints of the 20th century, certainly the greatest dogmatic theologian the church has probably produced in, in its whole history, at least in hundreds of years. What does St. Paisios say about this? He says, it appears, he's talking about Patriarch Athenagoras in 1965 when he, he got rid of the anathemas between the Pope and the Patriarch, and he talked uh, about the uh, dogmas uh, needing to be put in the, in the uh, storehouse and how uh, he, we were already united, uh, you know, in many ways with Catholicism. St. Paisios of the Holy Mountain says, It appears he loved another modern woman, which is called the Papist Church, because our Orthodox mother has not made an impression on him at all. She is so modest. This love, which was heard from Constantinople, caused a sensational impression of sorts among many Orthodox, who nowadays live in an environment of such meaningless love in cities across the entire world. Moreover, this love is of the spirit of our age. The family will lose its divine meaning from just such kinds of love, which have as their aim breakup and not union. Now, this is not an accident that he compares it to a family and the love that keeps a family together. It's exactly the same thing. It's very curious that Protestants are fighting so hard for the unity and the integrity of the family, and yet they do not fight and do not understand that the church is of the same nature. It has a identity, it has a unity, and it has to be one. But the one, as we said earlier, led to the other. The disintegration of our understanding of the body of the church, the family of the church, has led to the disintegration of the family itself. Just like we said earlier, we don't know what a woman is, because we don't know who, who Christ is and who, what a Christian is. And so that's very important what St. Paisius just said, how he, how he puts it. And he goes on and he says, one of the devil's tentacles, that's what he called ecumenism, the devil spread three tentacles to capture the world, the rich to catch, catch them with masonry, the poor with communism, and the religious with ecumenism. This is how St. Paisius understood the threat of ecumenism. Um, we're going to skip a couple because I think we, the point has been made. Um, I'm happy to talk about in the questions, if you want to, this canon of 95 of Trullo and explain what's being said there in terms of the various heretics and the reception. Uh, go on to canon 15. 
This is very interesting and important. Let's read this quickly, and then uh, I think we're almost finished. Uh, in the 1103, 1103, all right, 1103, the Church of Georgia had a council. It's just recently been translated into English. And in this council, they rule that not only uh, are ancient heretics to be baptized, but the various Monophysite groups, that would be the Copts, the Armenians, the Jacobites, and the others who are in communion with and have, accept, uh, have rejected the Fourth Ecumenical Council. And in this canon, they say, following the churches in Antioch and the great churches in the East, we baptize the Monophysites. Now, why do I bring that up? It's important. Because you see here, this has been totally lost today. Totally lost among the Orthodox. Totally lost among the hierarchy. This, this council is, not, is very significant, not just because the Georgian church was doing this, but they're citing the great churches of the East doing this. But today, very, very few people even acknowledge that this was the case. And they want us to already be of one faith with the Monophysites, the non-Chalcedonians. They're Orthodox, well-meaning Orthodox in America, priests, people who say, we're already one with the Monophysites. And they allow them to use their, their holy table and they allow them to come together and to pray. But the, the reality is, the sad reality is we're not. We haven't been. In fact, they broke off from the church in the fifth, in the five hundreds, four hundreds, in the fifth century, and the church tried repeatedly, with many attempts in ecumenical councils, to reconcile and to bring them back into communion, and it did not work. And one of the great saints that fought against these compromises was Saint Maximus the Confessor. So there's much more history and much more evidence that we cannot identify with the Monophysites, the non-Calcedonians, and not even receive them as we do today by confession of faith in their councils and witnesses like this. So there are, on many levels, the church is bombarded by compromises and by distortions uh, in, in, in terms of the boundaries. Um, we're not going to do, do this one. It's very long. You can read it in the PDF. And we'll end with this one. Uh, which will point to the next talk tonight, which we'll talk about uh, Father Seraphim's survival course. So where is this all leading? The compromise, one compromise to another. Mixed marriages, uh, prayer with heretics, recognition of mysteries. We have, across the board, we have erosions of the identity of Christ again and again and again. It's leading not only to a inter-Christian ecumenism, which will unite Christians without repentance and without denial of false dogma, but it's leading to pan-religious or inter-religious ecumenism and the idea that they, there are many paths up the mountain. We had a very prominent hierarch in the United States just a few years ago in a very uh, well-known speech tell us that there are many paths up the mountain and if you, Orthodox Christian, do not believe that the other religions are past at the mountain and salvific. You are a bigot. You are a bigot. You are bigoted against them. Now, we could talk for hours on what is he saying? I mean, it's so unorthodox. I don't know where to begin. It's so problematic. It's not even remotely an orthodox conception. Why would insistence of the Holy Fathers on the ecrivia, the exactitude of the faith, be equated to bigotry? Only somebody who's not orthodox and doesn't have an orthodox conception of these matters, these dogmas, could even conceive of such a thing. And yet we have a very prominent hierarchy in the United States telling us 
that we're all bigots if we don't accept Buddhism and Hinduism and the various religions as salvific. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is probably, I don't know if you can get more heretical in your conception of things than what was said. Listen to what Elder Athanasius Montelaneo says, and I've repeated this many times, but it's worth repeating. He talks about the last temptation of history. The last temptation of history will be this pan-religious unity of all religions, not physically, externally uniting them in one big gathering. That's not necessary. That's not going to happen. But the fact that Orthodox Christians and Hindus and Muslims will all say, look, we're not exclusive. You don't have to become a Muslim. You don't have to become a Christian. Everybody is on the path. God is working through all these religions. That will be the unity in the end times. That will be the last temptation of, uh, of, of the world uh, before the Antichrist because it will be an essential denial of the divinity of Christ. Because Christ himself said, only through me do you reach the Father. And so when we turn away and accept other paths as, as equal to Christ, we're essentially making Christ one of the religions, the church one of the religions. And Elder Athanasius says, and this unity will be experienced as a grave temptation, this unity, this false unity in ecumenism, which will visit the church worldwide, for it will obscure in order to set aside the theanthropic person of Jesus Christ and his body, the church. This will be the last temptation of history. It has been prophesied by Christ himself in the book of Revelation. It says there, Thou hast kept thy, the word of my patience. He's talking to the bishop uh, of... I'm not sure, I don't remember the, the local church he's talking to, but he's talking to one of the bishops of the seven churches of Revelation. And he says, Thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the entire world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Elder Athanasius says, this, Because this temptation will affect the entire world, it will be the great adulteration of faith in the theanthropic person of Christ and body of Christ. And that is what ecumenism will bring. Ecumenism will bring to the whole world this grave temptation of denying the theanthropic nature of Christ and his body. Thank you very much.